Balancing Point, Episode 10. Welcome to the Balancing Point Podcast, where we invite you to join us on a journey into the amazing world of professional ballet. Our guests will provide you with an inside peek into this exclusive world while offering motivation and inspiration on how to not only succeed in dance, but also in life. And now, your host, Kimberly Falco. Welcome everyone to Balancing Point. My name is Kimberly Falker and I'm glad you stopped by. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you to stop by our website at balancingpoint.com to check out the show notes page from each of the guests that we've featured thus far. On each of these pages, you'll find videos, photos, and more information on the guests that we've featured. We'd also love to keep in touch with you. You could either subscribe to our email list or find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We're very active on each of these, so if you have a question or a comment, we'd love to hear from you. I am just honored to bring you today's guest, Ree Gold, who is an icon in the dance world. I'm going to try to give you a brief history, but it's almost impossible as the Gold family is synonymous with many of the greatest dance competitions ever. Ree has been involved in dance since he was born, both as a dancer and as a leader in his field, spending years traveling the globe running some of the biggest competitions known in the competition world. He's retired today from the circuit, but now he's a motivational powerhouse and entrepreneur. He is dedicated to inspiring dance teachers to provide positive instruction and curriculum amidst the sometimes negative edge of the growing world of the competition dance circuit. We came to know him a few years ago through his Facebook page, Positive Dance Moms and Dads, created in response to the popular but controversial lifetime television program, Dance Moms. The page is updated daily with inspirational posts, and it reminds us all of the positive role we do and can play in our children's lives as dancers. When we asked Ree to be a guest on our show, little did we know the extent of his true force of inspiration. He's the publisher of Dance Studio Life magazine, the producer of DanceLifeD.com, the founder and director of Dance Life Teacher Conference, Dance Life Retreat Center, and Project Motivate. As the dance field's first motivational speaker, Ree has traveled the world presenting motivational and business seminars, as well as keynote addresses for conferences and conventions. His philosophies for the classroom, inspiring students, successful studio ownership, and respect for all dance teachers, along with his unmatched passion for dance education, have changed the way thousands of teachers and school owners perceive and approach their profession. So with that, I present to you Regold. All right, well, let's just jump right into it then. For me, I never really knew anything other than dance. Because by the time I was three years old, my mother had a school in the basement of our home in a small town called Randolph, Massachusetts. And I can remember being like 10 years old, 11 years old, and realizing that not everyone had a dance school in the basement of their home. (laughs) And being so surprised by that because it was uh, such a, a part of my life that You know, I just thought it was the norm. And uh, dance, I think by the time I was 10, I did a performance with my twin brother, Rennie. And something about that performance on that day told me that 
this was going to be the thing that I did the rest of my life. And it was at that point that I knew, I smile about this, uh, what my mother meant with my teacher when she said dance full out. Before that Monday, I did not understand what dance full out meant. So what did you discover about what that meant? That you had to give everything you had. Uh, It wasn't just moving your arms or your legs in a direction. It was coming from your gut and giving uh, the gut as part of the movement so that it would be the the biggest best that your body could give, I guess. That makes sense. And I could see that transferring into life itself. If you're going to take something on, you might as well do it full out, right? I'm with you 100%. <laughs> so in reading about the history and stories about both your mother and father, and um, I would highly suggest any listener read on your website the, the history because it's just fascinating. But um, in reading about their passion for dance and entertainment – it's so heartwarming and compelling. Can you share with the listeners a bit more about your parents and how they influenced your continued journey in dance? Okay, I'd love to. Um, I'll, I'm going to start with my father. My father was uh, 52 years old when I was born, so he was an older gentleman, and his performing career started at the tail end of vaudeville. Wow. So he had the opportunity to travel all over the country, never flew, but I have bills that he's on, uh, bills for performances that are in Kansas, that are in Oregon. And so I know that he was driving to all of these cities. And some of the bills call him a comedian. They call him a tap dancer. They call him a master of ceremonies. So he was everything. He was pretty much was, you know, he came from a world where you didn't say you were a dancer, you were a comic, you were this. You were everything you needed to be because there was so much show business going on that you learned how to be whatever they needed so that you could continue to work, (laughs) to to work. What was his history and training? I don't know so much. I do have a picture of him that where he's 15 years old and he has on a pair of tap shoes and there's four girls in the picture (laughs) with him uh, in like 1920 dance clothes. And so I know at 15, he was tapping somewhere. I don't don't know if it was a class, a performance, uh, what it was, but uh, I do know he was dancing at at age 15. And one time I saw a recital program that someone sent me, and it was a dance teacher who actually had her school in Randolph, where I grew up, but she had her school there before I was there. And on her recital program, my father was listed as the tap teacher. Oh my so goodness. I know he taught tap <laughs> for this woman named Rose Sidman in the 40s and 50s. So anyway, uh, 
he uh, was became a theatrical agent in Boston, and uh, my mother was a performer who, again, did a lot of things, but she was mostly an acrobat or a contortionist. And she came to New England because there was so much work in the New England states that you could stay in one location. Where had she come from? She was traveling the country, working club dates all over the country. That must have been draining. Yes, and she had uh, my older brother at the time, and she wanted to settle somewhere so that he could go to school. And so that, and by the way, she was from Arkansas. Oh, my goodness. Uh, but she landed in Massachusetts. My father became her agent. My mother started working in the office during the day because she could do shorthand. And uh, they fell in love. She was 26. She was 52. They had twin boys, and my mother was going to become a leave-it-to-beaver housewife. <laughs> and about two years later, she had the desire to dance again. And really, that was the beginning of how the school started. And it was your typical story of teaching the neighborhood kids. And it just grew and grew and grew. So I read that it grew so large that children would drive from quite a distance to take her classes? People came to my mother's school from Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts. Uh, yes, people came from from all over. Uh, my mother developed a reputation probably two or three years into her school that um, she was good at what she did. And she had uh, grown up doing all the levels of Shaketi. She knew acrobatics. She knew jazz dance as it was coming into the scene. So it wasn't only students she attracted. She attracted a lot of teachers. Ah, okay. So they would come for her or to her for advice and training, or how would that work? She used to do these things, uh, It was, uh, these classes called... Uh, teacher's classes and I remember them they were always on Friday morning and all these dance teachers would convene on the studio from all the states that I mentioned and my mother would give them a two-hour class with things that they could do in their classroom sometimes some routines that's such a Uh, great resource at that time I would imagine without the internet yeah, without the internet, absolutely. Back then, people used to talk to each other. <laughs> Although you and I shouldn't talk about that right now. <laughs> no, no, we would be not. having coffee back in those days. <laughs> so, describe for the listeners this story that I read about um, the police trying to shut her down and kind of her perseverance and um, what drove her to continue. Okay. Um, One of the most inspiring uh, moments of my life is this story that I'm about to tell you. When my mother had her school about 10 years in the basement, it had grown to about 200, 250 students. Was there room? No. Well, what (laughs) happened was there was room in the studio. My mother was always adding on. Okay. I'm not saying it was a huge studio, but it started so small that, I'm going to say during those 10 years, I remember construction probably like three times. Wow. So 
what happened was uh, the parking, parents coming uh, to either drop off their children, pick up their children. People would park in front of the neighbors' driveways. Um, it had become really a, a big business in a little teeny neighborhood. So the neighbors uh, went to the town and asked for the studio to be closed down, blah, blah, blah. And my mother knew that she had a, a bad situation, but she needed to stay where she was so she could make enough money to get out. So her her objective was, I'm leaving but I need to be able to leave and actually have the finances to open somewhere else. Well, it took her two years. She fought with the town for two years, had lawyers, had people on her side who would go to the town and speak positive things. Uh, and then one day, this is a moment that I'll always remember, they had been sending my mother cease and desist orders to close the business. So they had sent her one, and she absolutely refused uh, to stop. She just continued going. So two police officers came uh, into the house and asked where my mother was. My mother was downstairs teaching a, a, a group of babies, which is, we, we call them babies, but they're three, four-year-old kids. And she was sitting on the floor with them, and the police officer told her she must cease and desist. Otherwise, they were going to arrest her. And she said that they would have to drag her out in order for her to stop. And so I can remember standing behind the policeman thinking, oh, my God, they're going to take my mother out of here. How old were you and at they, the time? Ten, I think. Maybe eleven. So that must have been... A little bit scary for you because you were young enough to know that they meant business, right? Yes, absolutely. I was, I was, uh, I was really scared. But what happened was these two police officers closed the door to the classroom and walked out of the house. Wow! So my mother just kept sticking to what she knew she needed to do, and two years after the. Uh, fight to keep her studio. She found a building in another town called Brockton, Mass, and opened and ended up with about 700 students the very first year that she opened. Wow. So if your listeners are thinking uh, about this interview and what we're talking about, I can remember how horrific the two years seemed. But the 700 students in the much larger school would never have happened That's true. if the two really tough years had not happened. That's true. And then look at the legacy today, which we'll be talking about. But just think if she had rolled over or, or quit, a whole different projective process would have happened that, you know, your, your lessons learned would have been completely different. That's true. So now you're one of the major influences in dance and um, regarding teaching and raising awareness everywhere. Can you share some of what you're doing and what you're involved in, a little bit of your history with it? Uh, the base of almost everything that I do is that I, I truly believe that teaching dance is one of the greatest professions in the world. And, and why I believe that is because 
not because we teach students how to do steps, but we set an example and we set an example of what passion for what you do is all about. In order for kids to strive to be really good, they have to see somebody who strives to be really good, who strives and gives as much as they can give. So my, my thought is that the dance teacher has a huge responsibility. And many believe it's about the steps that they teach or the choreography or the awards or, or whatever it is, the accolades. I truly believe that it's about the little girl who comes into class and is in the back line and doesn't have confidence. But six months after she's been in your class, she moves to the front of the line because she's got that confidence in herself and that you instilled that in her. To me, that's what it's all about. That's true, and that's that's a super great way to think about it because from my perspective as a parent of a dancer, what I see is how it transfers into every facet of their life with grades and school and social life outside of that. So I think that if they see or they are taught that confidence and passion somewhere, it doesn't have to be with dance, but with, with whatever. But I agree with you that the teachers have a huge responsibility to raise it up rather than shut it down. I'm with you 100%. And every kid, no matter what size, shape, color, every kid can develop a passion for dance. And they don't have to be phenomenal dancers to develop that passion. It's a lifelong love that you're instilling. Well, that's true. And, and there's nothing like going to a wedding and watching all the ages on the dance floor and their hearts are singing. And they're not embarrassed. They're not worried about what somebody thinks. There's just something magical about being able to do that free form. Even if you have a technical process in it, it's still within your heart, it seems like. Absolutely. What you, what a great example. That's that's exactly what it's all about. There's another part of what I do too. Uh, one of the 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 next priority for me is to see dance teachers and school owners, no matter where they come from, what their background is. This one has a degree. This one opened up her own studio with no degree. That they respect each other. That's a good point. And um, stop worrying about the school up the street. Just focus on what you want to accomplish. Uh, when you say that to dance people, their mouths drop open because they think they need to know everything and be bigger and better. And I'm not sure that that's what our focus should be on. Well, I think that, like, in any business... I think that it works better if there's collaboration rather than competition because really if the ultimate goal is to raise the bar of dancers and raise the opinion of dance as a activity, occupation, whatever it is, then everybody should be collaborating rather than competing because it really will help it if we all respect each other, I think. I'm with you. You know, so your mom started the studio, became a huge success. Let's go back to that part of the journey. What happened next? My mother's school expanded uh, in this new location in Brockton, Massachusetts, which which is where the school is, is still located. Actually, this is our 50th 
anniversary for uh, the gold school this year. So it started 50 years ago. Um, my mother ended up uh, becoming a master teacher, traveling around the country, working for all of the organizations and summer schools and conventions. Uh, and she did that for a, a, a lot of years. My mother was gone on most weekends because that's what she did. She used to say, that's how I make a living. Um, and she started taking Rennie and I with her when we were like 14, 15. So we were assisting her. So we had the chance to, uh, travel and meet all these people that she'd be teaching with. Uh, I can remember Gus Giordano. I can remember Luigi. I can remember a woman named Beverly Fletcher who was a tap master. Um, so I always feel like that time, and even though it was my mother who was working, was a huge influence on my brother and I because we had the chance to meet so many of the big people in the industry. Wow. Um, so my mother continued. The school continued to grow. Uh, she started something called the Sherry Gold Dancers, which is what Rennie and I were a part of when we were 16, probably till 22. And what was that? We traveled all over the country, uh, really doing what my mother did. I mean, we did a lot of club dates. Now it was more conventions too. Like, like the scene had changed a little bit. It was uh, seven dancers, seven to nine dancers, because it would change. And uh, we did shows all over the country. Oh, that's really neat. What was cool, too, was that my father was our agent. Oh, fun. <laughs> the school grew. Rennie and I went and did our, our thing, continuing to teach on and off through the years. And then at 58, after my mother added a, uh, at she was 58. She added a second story onto her building, and she had her dream studio. And one day she called me up and said, I'm going to the doctor. My chest is burning. And uh, that was the beginning of uh, her being diagnosed with cancer and lasting about nine months after that day. And both Rennie and I... Uh, inheriting what my mother started uh one of the toughest times of my life but i have to say i can look back almost 20 years later and say that i learned more during that period of time i think than any other time in in my life so i can't imagine how old were you at the time 33 okay so without expecting to inherit it at that time you were in a position to try and make sure that all the work your mom had done didn't fall apart, right? Yes, actually, at the time, felt an obligation to do so. Right. Um, But even that, in my mind, has changed, meaning we're about to hit the 50-year mark. If this were the last year, I accept that now. I would totally accept that. It's not going to be. But one of the things I learned at 33... And then almost every year since. If you can't accept that life changes, then you really aren't going to have a good time at this journey. 
So, yes, I could let go of the school because I know what the school has done and that it's a piece of what me, my brother, and all the people who grow up at the school are now doing. Right. So then what you were living nearby and you kind of took on the school as well, or what happened? What? Yes. What happened was this. I had a company that I had started called the American Dance Awards. It was uh, dance competitions. We traveled to, at that time, at the time my mother died, we were traveling to like 50 cities across the country. So that was my full-time job. I would go to the studio and teach and choreograph, but it was really my mother's baby. I moved, when my mother died, I moved the... Uh, competition offices into the studio and I would do the competition work and my employees would be there. And then at three o'clock I became a studio uh, owner and director. Um, but I, I, I was so burned out at the time that I lasted about two years. Rennie was choreographing at Disney in Florida. And one day he called me up and said that he was thinking he might like to run the school and you said hallelujah. <laughs> hallelujah. Because I, I was still thinking it had to go on. Yeah. That's a lot and of pressure. Yes, 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 yes. But I think even Rennie came in thinking that, but I'm not sure that he thinks that anymore. <laughs> so how did you get um, started when you started running the conventions? What was kind of the um, reason to go that direction well this is what happened we were 17 i told you about the sherry gold dancers we had the opportunity to dance in las vegas but the contingent on doing the job with the agent or whoever it was at the time was that we got new costumes so my mother had run a dance competition in Boston. It was called Terpsichore Awards. It was very successful. Terpsichore's the goddess of dance, by the way. Um, and we decided to do a competition in Connecticut as a fundraiser for those costumes. So that competition was a huge success. We as a company continued to run it for about three or four more years, and it would always be how we supported ourselves and our costumes and things that we needed as a company. And then the company disbanded, and I ended up with the uh, business. And at the time, I was in my early 20s. Uh, at 26, I decided I was going to expand it and go to like 10 cities. And it just took off from there. It, it really was, uh, for me, a 24-year whirlwind of uh, crisscrossing this country, watching thousands and thousands of kids dance. It had great moments and it had some really hard. How has the competition world changed in your opinion? Is it similar to what it was then? I know it's really quite a huge business now in all aspects of dance. Um, without offending anybody, it's a totally different world now. You, you have to understand that back then 
it was a first, second, and third place award, and everybody else went home with nothing, and they didn't quit dancing. Now, now we see events, and even some of the serious ballet competitions, and they have super titanium awards and <laughs> super gold awards. And it's almost like everybody gets a ribbon. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And then now it all has to be gold, so they just call it something gold but reality is if you look at it it's gold silver bronze but they call it by a different name we went to a basketball tournament for my son last weekend and you know it instead of just saying if you lost you went into the loser bracket which of course nobody likes to hear that but they call it the friendship bracket and i'm like come on just say what it is you know well you know we are creating a generation of kids who believe that you pay for it and you win it. Even parents believe that. Now, I don't want to give your listeners or anybody the impression that I think the dance competition is a bad thing because I grew up participating and I know it inspired me as a dancer and made me better because I worked harder. I think it's how we, the adults pass on what the experience is all about to the kids. That's a good point. And that there's a reality to this. I have no problem telling kids who who won all gold medals that that titanium gold is a gold, that medium gold is a silver, <laughs> and that love gold is a bronze. <laughs> Let's get back to work. Right. So kind of fast forward to what you're doing today and fill us in on some of the big... Um, you're you're so multifaceted that I don't even want to pretend to explain. I want to come from you. All right, I'm gonna, I'll give it my best shot. At at 41, after 24 years of doing the competition business, maybe 42 at the time, uh, I was burned out. I was uh, tired. Um, the competition world had changed. This is uh, something that really bothered me at the end was I had lifelong friends who might come to a dance competition and not be happy with what they scored, and they were no longer lifelong friends. Aww. So, What year was that? I'm sorry. 2003. Okay. When did you kind of start seeing the shift in the whole experience? I'm going to say four or five years before that. Okay. What happened was, I, we got to get back to what happened after, but I'd like to say this. What happened was there were only a couple of dance competitions, a few. What happened was there were ended up being many, 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 many. So I believe that they were competing for entries. So they would make everyone feel good so that they would come back to their competition. The, the reality of the educational experience was gone. So I started to know this in the end, and I could not give out a titanium medal. So I knew that if what I started was going to go on, I needed to get out because my mindset actually wasn't good <laughs> for the future success of my business. We were huge at the time, so I actually got out right on time, I feel. 
And uh, that company still exists. It's like 30-something years old now, and it's run by a woman uh, who was a former school owner, and her name is Gloria Jean Cuming, and it's based out of Connecticut. And it warms my heart that this thing I started is still going. But I would, I would not go back. I would only take it with me, what I got from it. So anyway, in 2003, I sold it. I remember sitting on the balcony of a really beautiful hotel in New York in this suite because it was my final event. It was a big final, so the hotel was treating me like gold. And uh, sitting there saying, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Like at the same time, I had this relief. I was not sure where I was going to go. So what happened was this. I had a newsletter called The Gold Rush that I used to send out, and I used to write articles that pertained to teaching, that pertained to the business, whatever I felt like. So I sent that last Gold Rush out and had explained that I had sold the American Dance Awards, and this would be the last Gold Rush, blah, 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 blah. So this guy who owned a costume company, uh, it's CC Costumes in Pennsylvania, called me up. He obviously didn't read the newsletter because he said, I love your newsletter. Would you consider taking an ad in it? But he didn't read that it was the last <laughs> newsletter. So I, I just shut up about it. I hung up the phone. I said, I'll call you back. I hung up the phone. I went online. I don't know if I went online, actually. I don't know if online existed at the time. <laughs> yeah, it did. But anyway, I, I researched and found out about media kits, which is, you know, what a magazine sends to potential advertisers, how big the ads are, what the rates are, blah, blah, blah. And I faked it and made a media kit. And I sent it back to the guy. And I sent it to a whole bunch of other companies that I knew in the industry. And the next newsletter, which, by the way, it ended, um, was like I uh, had 13 full page ads in it. So I became a publisher. I became a publisher of a magazine. And so you, in your mind, you're thinking no longer a newsletter. I'm going to turn it into something bigger. What were your thoughts? I didn't have any. <laughs> she wants to see who, who bit at your media kit. <laughs> you know, if I do it a second time, <laughs> this guy just kind of triggered me to investigate. I loved writing. I had been writing for Dance Magazine. I had a column in Dance Magazine. I wrote for another publication that existed at the time called Dancer. And... I always got letters about my articles from people or feedback, even some people who disagreed with what I was saying. Right, which sometimes is and the I best thought, advertising, too, for what you say, you know? Yes, yes. So I knew I loved writing, and I wasn't sure where it was going to go. And you know what? Uh, the first year we did six editions. We did that for about three years, four years. We went to seven. We went, and finally, in the end, we no, we went to nine, and now we're at ten. But we're not going more than ten. It's a uh, print magazine, though now we are online as well. But the print magazine is, uh, you know, a slick color magazine. What's the name of it? It started off as the Gold Rush, and now it's called Dance Studio Life. I love the Gold Rush. That's awesome. 
I had to change it because I was dealing with uh, marketing people and we were growing and growing. And people needed to know what it was about probably. Uh, yeah, yeah. But what a great it's, last well, name to use in all facets. Yeah, <laughs> you're right about that. I have used it often. <laughs> Tell us about Project Motivate. Project Motivate started as a business and motivational seminar for dance teachers. Um, while I was doing the competitions, I was seeing a lot of burned out dance teachers. And because I grew up in the uh, studio, my mother was a teacher, I would give them different advice and people would write me afterwards and go, I thought about what you said, blah, blah, blah. And I also felt like teachers needed to know more about business than they did, especially the school owners. So uh, I launched this seminar called Project Motivate, and it had about 20 attendees. I think it was 1996. I really liked it. And so I kept pushing to make that work. The next year I had less people, by the way. Uh, but I kept pushing, and it turned into the Dance Life Teacher Conference. This summer we had uh, 750 dance teachers from all over the world there. So Project Motivate. Just skyrocket. So where's that held every year? It's every other year, and it is in Scottsdale, Arizona, at the Phoenician Resort. So while that was going on, I always dreamed about having my own place, uh, an intimate place, because that's how Project Motivate started. Um and I always dreamed of having a retreat center. And about three or four years ago, I was driving around in the town that I lived in, and I found this estate that had a log house that was dilapidated on it. And I investigated and was told I couldn't do what I wanted to do on that property, so I let it go. And then I got another phone call from the building inspector who said, you might be able to do it. And went through this whole process of trying to figure that out and opened it, built it a year and a half. It took to build it and uh, opened it in July of 2012. So what's your vision with that? Or what to bring dance teachers together, to share the life that only they know with other dance teachers, um, to, to, send them home ready to tackle the things that they don't have enough confidence in themselves. And by that, I mean some some people who own schools or teach are stressed out because the parents are on them all the time, but they don't realize that they allow the parents to be on them all the time. Um, they're financially in trouble, but they don't realize that they need to focus on the once a week student, they think they have to have all of these advanced dancers and win all of these awards. And when someone tells them that it's okay to focus in on these kids who come once a week, who pay full tuition, their mouths drop open. So for me, the retreat center is saying, why do you do what you do? Who are you and what do you want to sell? What is your product? Because it's different from the school up the street. And um, that most people 
are looking for a once a week dance lesson and a recital at the end of the year. So that's what you need to be. You can't be the most professional because not even, and that doesn't mean you aren't the most professional, but you can't tell everybody you are because that scares off the mom of a once a week kid. So it's a catch 22, but it's your ego that makes you want to say, you're the best, you're the biggest, our dancers are all professionals. But you need to let that ego go and just be satisfied inside that you can do that and teach everybody who wants to dance and you'll be a successful, successful business owner. It's true because you never know that that once a week dancer, the difference that you make in their lives might propel them to become something that they never could have been otherwise in any other field. So you don't you don't want to discount how you can touch everybody's life. You're absolutely right. And more dancers who take dance lessons, only 1% pursue a career in dance at all. But tons of them become lawyers, doctors, own their own businesses. And they'll tell their children's stories of their experience at a really great studio. And they'll bring their kids to dance. That's right. Well, it sounds like the retreat is very... Um much down the lines of what your mom did in her house with the teachers and their weekly class that they had. It's almost like you're kind of really sharing her legacy in a whole different direction. I never thought of it that way. Yes, you're absolutely uh, correct. I love it. If uh, you ask me where I'd like to go, it's it would be that this is what I did every day, all day long. I could see that being a really great, I could see why that would be, because it's just, uh, it it feels, it feels more, I don't know how to word it, but it feels as if you're more capable of making a difference in that kind of setting than a huge conference. I mean, the intimate nature is how you send people off, and then they can make the bigger difference. Right. I always look at it like this. If the average school owner has 200 kids, then maybe I'm making a difference in the 200 kids when they go home. I would imagine. It's just, it's like anything. If you come away refreshed and invigorated and motivated, then you will make a difference in anybody's life. You know? Absolutely. And they sleep there and eat there and everything? Uh, do everything but sleep here. We feed them. That's one of the... Uh, my philosophy is to always give people more than they expect, so we do really, really good food. <laughs> but we, we shuttle them to and from the hotel. In the morning, we pick them up. It's about a mile and a half away. And uh, at night, we get done about 9 o'clock, we take them back. Other than that, they're here at the retreat center all day. Oh, that's great. So where is it located? It's located in Norton, Massachusetts. That's so Sort of uh, about an hour from Providence and about an hour from Boston. We're in the middle of both cities. And the retreats are how long typically? Uh, two to three days. That's great. Yeah, it'll be for you almost like going to summer camp in the summer, huh? <laughs> yes, and, and one of the greatest things is I fly. I still do a lot, but I, I flew everywhere. I love that I can walk out in my yard to the retreat center, teach these people, enjoy it, not go back to my hotel room. And on Sunday, they all fly home and I'm home already. You have no idea. 
Can you share with the listeners a time in your journey say, where you kind of experienced a, a setback that caused you to pause and have to recalibrate? Uh, the very first thing that comes to mind was something that happened to me, I'm going to say three or four years into uh, having expanded my competition to a national event. Uh, we we ran regional events, and then the winners of those events got to go to a national event. And we ran a national event in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And we boomed that particular year. And the hotel was not big enough for the event. There were storms during the week, and the hotel's roof leaked. There were wet rugs that people were slipping on. Uh, and you could not have anticipated any of that, right? <laughs> I anticipated none of it. I was naive. I relied on the hotel to have it together. And so the whole week was catastrophic as far as I'm concerned. Now, 20, not 20 yeah, maybe about 20 years later, there's people who come to me and say, hey, I was at Cherry Hill. <laughs> I go, you were? See, it's a standout memory for everybody. <laughs> standout memory. And I can remember the event um, made me so upset, and I was leaving. I had driven to uh, Cherry Hill from Boston. I was leaving, and I got just got on the highway and was thinking how great it was to just be heading home, and I got a flat tire. Oh, no. <laughs> so I remember thinking. <laughs> You're like, what, what lesson do I have to learn here now? <laughs> this thing was never going to end. But anyway, <laughs> what it did to me was I went home after I got over my major depression, and made myself the most organized event that I could be. Always going into the hotels and explaining every single thing that I needed and what they should expect. And it's where I developed the give them more than they expect attitude. So we'd run these events and I'd put on a show that they didn't expect. I'd give out gifts they didn't expect. And that event was catastrophic however it made it so that my competitions from that point forward were always known as the most organized and together events what's funny is that i lost a couple customers that i always wished that i could have gotten back later but i got so many other customers who who believed in what i was doing that it didn't matter but right well, kind of goes back to that um when when you reach a hurdle or, or a disappointment, it's what you do with it. And obviously you turned it into a skill set that made you stand above everybody else, whereas you could have just kind of put your tail between your legs and said, never mind, no more. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Well, that's that's great. And it sounds like it kind of turned you into a bit of a marketing machine. You're absolutely right. I, I want to tell you one, one quick story. I'll try to make it quick. Um. One other thing that happened when uh, I was running events that was a life changer for me, but such a positive one in the long run. Um, I once did an event in Florida at a major uh, Disney hotel. 
And when you sign for these events, you're signing a contract with the hotel that says you'll book thousands of rooms, okay? So I always sign those contracts based on what I had done the year before. So I go to this major Disney hotel, and I'm running my event, and they come to me in the middle of the event, and they say, Mr. Gold, you did not make your room block. Uh, according to the contract, you owe us 600 and blah, 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 thousand dollars. Now, I had a huge event jam-packed with people and kids, and I was sure that I had made my room block. So I go home, and I hire a lawyer, blah, blah, blah. And I end up in court fighting over the 600000 and what it turned out had happened was my attendees were not booking their rooms under the block because the hotel was offering a discount that was even less than my rate, which was supposed to be discounted. So I went through two years, went to Florida, went to court, blah, 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 ended up winning the case. So I came home and I said to my staff, we are now going to take the reservations ourselves. I put on a full-time person from January through June to take reservations. And now we supply the list to the hotel. I figured this would never happen to me again if I did that. All of a sudden, about six weeks after the event, I get a check for $22,000 from the hotel. It was my commission <laughs> on booking all of those hotel rooms. <laughs> so... I then immediately became a member of this travel agent society, started a company called Celebrity Travel, oh and I booked every hotel room at every event and have been making commission ever since. Oh, my goodness. I hope you teach this at your retreat. Because <laughs> that's a great, so great I, I lesson. I a company called Celebrity Jeez. Travel, and I love it. <laughs> I know nothing about the travel age. Sometimes we get calls because we're listed. Sometimes we get calls for people who want to take a trip. Oh, my gosh. That's hilarious. That's a great story. <laughs> well, you, you spoke of the lessons learned from the one big catastrophic moment at Cherry Hill. What about um, a celebratory standout moment? I think most people would not think that this is what I would say. But I, I, I think it was... A turning point for me. Um, when I was like 21, there was this competition, and it was called Mr. Dance of America, and it was in sponsored by an organization called Dance Masters of America. It had only existed for a couple of years. My brother had been in it the first year and was first runner-up, and I decided I wanted to go in. But I didn't say anything to my mother. I didn't say anything to anybody. I actually had been a member of the organization, so I sent in my own entry form, and I was my own teacher. And when I made that decision, I locked myself in the studio. I would go there at 10 o'clock at night, and I would uh, do my choreography 10 times in a row because I knew that that would help my stamina. I would sit there with my leg up on the wall stretching. I would do anything I could to prepare myself for this event. 
I had never worked so hard in my life. And I made my own costume. I uh, kept my mouth shut. And this probably started in the spring. Um, in June, there was this dance competition that we all went to all the time. And I did my number that I had made up to We Are the Champions. Um, so you know the error that I'm talking about. And uh, I can remember my mother crying because she didn't know what I had done. She didn't even know that in a month she was going with me <laughs> to this Mr. Dance contest, that she was going, but that I was in it. She didn't know that. So at this competition, I won all these awards, this choreography award, and it made me more determined. I went back into the studio and said, I'm going to win this. I'm going to win this. And I went to the competition, worked my butt off, and I won. And to me, that was uh, one of the crowning achievements because determination was... The driving force. Uh, yeah. And it was and completely I, I, within you. Completely. I wanted it to be. I wanted to see if I could do this myself. That's really a fabulous story. I was able at the time to hold it in, to have the patience. That's great. That's a long time to have that patience, too. It sure was. I kept thinking the whole time, if this doesn't work, I'll call that guy and ask him to pull my entry form. Oh, interesting. Yeah, at least you had an out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, Rhea, along your rich and deeply involved journey, what's one piece of advice you've received that stuck with you over the years? Patience. And... You know, it, it doesn't happen overnight. You have to lay a base, and then you have to think about it all the time. And if it's right, it happens. And if it's not right, something else happens that was the right thing that happened. You may start off on a journey thinking one thing and end the journey with a totally cool thing that you didn't expect. So your family has obviously played a huge role in your success, but besides the legacy of your parents, how has your family played a part in your success in your current portion of your career? I have an older brother. His name is Tony, and nobody knows about him. Everybody knows Rian Rennie Gold. But Tony is the guy who encouraged me to build this retreat center and took it on as a full-time job to supervise and look over the building process of this building, which was something he did not know how to do when he started, but became really good at it in the end. And he's still here with me at the retreat center. So um, it's expanded that, that it's not just Rennie and Ree now. Tony's involved in all of this, and uh, that makes me very happy. Now, where do you see yourself and the Gold Family Company, you know, the different branches of it, five years from now? Wow, that's a hard one. Um, if you asked me, I'm not sure it's five, but ten years from now, I'd like to be at the retreat center only. Well, it seems like it's going in that direction because it, it does seem as if it's evolving in the right way. That's... uh. That's my ultimate goal, I think, in the in the long run. Now, I don't know. I I think of different things I can do at the retreat center, so I don't know if it's in its final uh, evolution or I've just begun. 
Uh, Probably a combination of both, right? <laughs> are you familiar with uh, Jacob's Pillow? Yes, yes. Okay, so Jacob's Pillow, for your listeners who may not know, is a great performance uh, summer performance place up in the Berkshire Mountains of Massachusetts, and great dance companies come, and attendees come all summer long. So I've been inspired by them, and there's this 25 acres across from the Dance Life Retreat Center, and I keep saying, I'm going to open Ree's Mattress Ree's across Ma- the street. <laughs> And have a place to perform and run Reuse mattress. Class. <laughs> but that's just a humorous one. I'm 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 not positive. But conceptually that speaking, one. that you know, get the get that acreage quick. <laughs> there you go. I think that I like that concept. I could see in my brain how it would evolve into something really fabulous. But I need the money for the twenty five. There acres. you go. So if any of your listeners are interested, let them, let them uh, certainly feel free to email me. <laughs> well, maybe you could do a, a contract for Dean, pay a dollar a day. <laughs> there you go. So is there anything about yourself that um, you're willing to share that might surprise the listeners? I was once a pinball champion. Really? Yes. Again, speaking of I, the era, right? <laughs> Speaking of the era, yeah, I guess you're right. There's probably some we are the champion. Who, yeah, there's probably some people who don't know what a pinball machine is. Well, I used to be awfully good at centipedes, so there you go. <laughs> centipede. When that was around, there were still some pinball machines. Oh, there was. I liked that pinball as well. <laughs> Pac-Man and centipede were mine. <laughs> I worked really hard and prepared for a pinball championship and and won it. And I think it was just luck, but I can remember thinking, <laughs> wow, how cool is this? Well, you know what? There, I could see your history in dance working because there's a little bit of like choreography that goes into pinball. At least I used to fake it. I... <laughs> that is so true. You need hips, <laughs> head isolation. It kind of like intimidates your uh, competitors. <laughs> You know, at this point in the interview, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions that um, are given to me from actual aspiring dancers. These two questions come from two different Twitter followers. One is Ballet Love and the other Dancer to Be. Um, the first question is, what is your advice on to dancers on auditions? My advice to dancers on auditions is to go in, even if you're faking it, appearing that you have confidence in yourself. And when I say that, I mean, do not look intimidated by the process. Uh, make eye contact with people that are making the decisions. Also understand that you may be the best one in the, in the room, but they need a blonde and you're not a blonde. The audition process can't freak you out or, or make you believe that you're not good enough. The audition process is is where you learn, and by the time you learn, you'll be really good at the auditioning process and get what you want in the long run if you're willing to put yourself out there. Yeah, I think I, I, I've auditioned dancers of all kinds, and that non-confidence thing just 
immediately, even if they're really good, if they're looking at the floor or they're, it's, it, it doesn't work for me. You're auditioning to perform and make yourself stand out somehow. There's always, you know, by being the most competent person there. You know, I say to teachers a lot, your business needs to appear organized. And notice that I said appear. <laughs> it doesn't always have to be organized, but if you appear like it's together, people will believe it's together. And I believe that the auditioning process is the same way. Next question is, what's your advice to ballet dancers about competitions? I'll be a little sarcastic with the first part of my answer. I used to laugh because the ballet dancers and the more serious ballet schools kind of poo-poo dance competitions. Now what's, what's funny to me is seeing all of these dance competitions that are focused on ballet and they're actually attracting some phenomenal dancers and awesome scholarships to programs that definitely would help kids. So uh, sarcastically, I say, look at you now. <laughs> um, but but uh, this is what I, I say. You, you stop thinking about any other dancer. Stop thinking that you have to win in order to feel like you're a success when you go into a competition. Be able to look at other people who are stronger or who win and figure out why they are stronger and why they won so that you end up being a winner when you leave because you're smarter. That goes to teachers or choreographers as well. What can you learn from other people? If you only go to places where you win, you will always stay mediocre. Oh, that's a good point. You must be exposed to people who are stronger than you are. And again, that applies in life too. <laughs> So do you think summer intensives are a good idea for dancers is the next question. Yes. I, uh, I could elaborate, but if you ask me to sum it up, I'd say everybody needs to take from different teachers, different perspectives, uh, expose themselves to classrooms and other dancers that they're unfamiliar with because that's how you grow. And the most important thing is being able to take a class from a different teacher. So, re in closing, I'm going to ask a few final questions that I ask all of my guests. The first one is if you could go back in time to your 13 year old self with the wisdom, confidence, and lessons you've learned along the way, what advice would you give to yourself? Coming from a male dancer perspective, I would have. Not, I would not freak out so much when people made fun of me because I was a male dancer. I'd be strong enough to stand up for myself and my passion. Uh, at 13, I was totally insecure about that, just like a lot of other male dancers are at 13 right now. Um, and I'd have to go back to something I said earlier. I am not capable of doing what I do unless I learn the skill of patience. And at 13, I had none whatsoever. <laughs> 
And I, I, I doubt that if somebody had said to have patience, it would have changed anything, right? <laughs> no, because I didn't know what patience meant, I don't think. You learn a lot of things as you grow older that you thought you knew already or you took for granted that you knew. And then these bells or lights go off and you go, oh, that's what that really means. And with the same wisdom and life lessons learned, what would be your advice to aspiring dancers today? Again, don't worry about other people and what they're doing. Worry about yourself. We live in a world of dance where you could be a professional dancer, you could be a ballerina, you could be a dance critic, you could um, run dance events, you could produce festivals. There's so much in this dance world, and I think that young dance people believe that the only thing out there is to be a professional dancer. Only a few people actually make it that far. Dance is a wide open community and a wide open place. Look at you doing this podcast. This is dance. I, I heard from one of the interviews of a principal dancer. She said, the one thing you know for sure in dance is it will never be your only career. You will have, you know, if you're a, if you're a principal dancer, it will, that's not forever. So it's fabulous to know that there's a thousand different paths to fulfill a passion. And um, it could be in, in multiple different ways. What you really have to do is fulfill the path that works for you, not the path that someone expects you to fulfill or that you've set as the only thing that you'll be able to perceive as your own success. Go with the flow, as crazy or as as stupid as that may sound with people. Boy, it's the truth. Go with the flow. And then finally, what is your favorite quote, um, motivational quote, and how have you applied it in your life? The, my favorite quote is the title of a book. It's called Happiness is a Choice. It's written by a guy named, uh, his name is Barry Neal Kaufman, and he runs a center in the Berkshire Mountains called the Option Institute. He works with parents also of kids that have autism. So his whole philosophy is, you know, life is choices and uh, we may have a child with autism however how do we choose to accept that and what gift could that be so that quote means to me that everything is a choice so you could say something to me and i could say you upset me but what i really should say is i'm making a choice to let you upset me and so I look at everything as a choice. Do I want to stress out about this or do I not want to stress out about this? Choices. Choices. That's great. Well, Ree, thank you so much for your time. I know that been so rich with information and advice and takeaways from my perspective. Um, if, if the listeners want to get in touch with you or, you know, kind of learn more about everything you're involved in, how can they reach you? Uh, they can email me at re, R-H-E-E, -E, at regal.com. And everybody should check out the Dance Studio Life Facebook page. There's about 66,000 followers there, and we, we put everything up there uh, that's happening, inspirational things, uh, 
What's interesting is I have a lot of normal everyday people who go to our page because they love the inspiration, even though it's focused on dance. I think they believe that it, it also works for their normal lives in the normal world. <laughs> well, I think you're right. It's kind of like we talked about before that dance is within all of us. It's just not always defined as that heartfelt singing that you feel, you know, you don't cause a, a higher level of inspiration. I mean, I think that dance is a very inspiring art form or athleticism. And I think that all of us want to tap into that to some degree in our day. Yes, yes, yes. I think it's a gift dance. So if a teacher or a listener is a teacher and had any interest in the retreat, uh, is there a way that they can contact you if they wanted to find out more? Is there a link to that? Uh, yes, actually, there's a website, and it's danceliferetreat.com. And they could also email me at reatregold.com, and I'll answer any questions. But check out the website first, because we have uh, a lot of your typical questions answered there. Well, that's great. And uh, I'd love to pretend I was a dance teacher and go to the retreat. <laughs> It'd be fun. <laughs> You're allowed. We actually have a lot of husbands and siblings of dance teachers who come. You should, you should host a retreat for dance moms <laughs> without it having the negative connotation. <laughs> uh, listen, don't think I haven't thought about it. I honestly think it'd be great, you know, to try and tap into what, how to understand the paths, navigate in the most healthy way. Um, guide, but listen. Guide, but listen, because I've seen some very discouraged people who want to dance in their lives, and their parents insisted that they go to college with no dance, and the four years extinguishes the fire. So there has to be a balance of them having the ability, even if they're majoring in a non-dance thing, to be somewhere where they can dance, where that outlet is there for them. Dance comes in all shapes, sizes, and forms. And a good dancer could be a little girl who has Down syndrome from Tennessee and the audience stands up because they were so moved by her performance, yet she didn't do one thing that was technically difficult. And, and people need to know that. Dance, yes, we strive as dancers to improve our technique and, and be strong dancers and be respected for that. But dance, uh, from an audience perspective, uh, move the audience and you're a dancer. Well, thank you. I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And I will share it with everyone. Well, good. And if you're ever in the Twin Cities area, give us a holler. We'd love to meet you. I, uh, in looking at you on Skype here, I think you look like you're from Minnesota. <laughs> It's a certain look, I know. And by the way, when I ran dance competitions, Minnesota was my biggest city ever. Really? Always. always. More kids dance in Minnesota than any place else. And thank you once again, everyone, for tuning in today to Balancing Point Podcast. Be sure to tune in tomorrow as we present to you the star of the hit TV show, Breaking Point, Allison DeBona. Thank you and have a great day.